This is Window on the East, a podcast from BNE Intellinews. Subscribe at bne.eu. Hello and welcome to Window on the East with me, Ben Aris, the editor of BNE Intellinews. The talk is of war. Russia is threatening to invade Ukraine. If it does, then the West will respond with massive sanctions. I talked to Elena Rybkova. She's a deputy chief economist with the Institute for International Finance, a Washington-based think tank, about what's on the list and how painful it could get. So I'm very pleased um, to be joined today by Elena Rybkova. She's deputy chief economist at the, uh, what is it, the Institute for International Finance, so the topic on the table today is sanctions, how bad can it get? And uh, this whole story has got pretty crazy. Um, and the sanctions are predicated on the threat of possible invasion by Russia into Ukraine. And then these sanctions would kick in. And there's been a whole string of various sanction laws. And despite the fact that here at BNE, we're pretty convinced that Russia is not going to invade Ukraine. And so these sanctions won't be triggered. It is possible that there are some lower level military actions by Russia, destabling Donbass, possibly a land bridge to link Crimea to Russia. And so um, these sanctions are could be used, um, maybe not quite as advertised, but they definitely should come in. Um, and also we've been taking the line that sanctions as a policy is pretty played out, that um, the Putin's fiscal fortress and the pay down of debt makes it very difficult to get at him or Russia. Um, nevertheless, what they're proposing from Biden administration and many European countries um, are extremely painful sanctions. They've been threatening him with quote-unquote massive consequences. So we want to have a look and see what exactly is being proposed and how painful they are. So, Elena, if you don't mind, uh, what I did this morning was I went through the bill and I made a list and I thought it would be useful if we just sort of go through it uh, and talk the, talk the points one by one. And then after that, I think we can have a brief discussion about disruptions, because parallel to the sanctions, there's things that are not on the list, but things like the ruble, uh, the asset market, that, which are already being affected. Uh, maybe we can have a quick look at those. So if we spend a few minutes on each, uh, I think the easy one to kick off with is uh, Nord Stream 2. And... It seems there's no dispute about that one. If there is some military action, then Nord Stream 2 will be just shuttered and, and that will be the end of it. Is, is that how you understand it? That seems to be the communication, very clear communication from the US. And US can do that via secondary sanctions. And we can speak more about that. It can also do it via direct sanctions, but secondary sanctions probably the easiest. Um, the Europeans also talked about it. And you saw various government officials from Germany, from where you're sitting at, uh, uh, commenting that they will stop Nord Stream 2. Uh, legally, it will be interesting how they will have to do that because uh, Nord Stream sort of qualified through most of the loopholes. It's in the last stage of, uh, of approval process that might, if abstracting from US-Russia uh, situation right now, could have gone in the second half of the year just to pretty much be approved. Um, so it will be interesting what, uh, the, what Germany would come up with as, um, as a reason and, and sort of legal framework for, for shutting it down. So surely I've just been assuming that, <clears throat> that they won't give it the regulation uh, sign-off that it's been waiting for. I mean, you're saying that there's other things they can do? Because before well, they were talking about sanctioning German companies and the Germans obviously got really upset about that. 
So the U.S. exactly can go sanctioning European companies uh, and uh, that is, and we can spend actually some time a little bit on that because Europeans haven't been very happy about that at all. Uh, Germany can just give not regulatory approval, but uh, if Germany is sticking strictly to the rules of the regulatory approval, and it has been until recent change in rhetoric, is that we're sticking to the, it's a market-based systems, we have regulatory framework in place, uh, this is what we do. So mm. then they will have to find a way to say, well, now we're changing our regulatory approval process because of the political, geopolitical reasons. Mm. Yeah, then you get sued, though, don't you? Because, I mean, that's the problem. I mean, the oligarchs have just sued journalists and saying, like, you're not holding us to the same standards as you hold everyone else. And you could argue here is the same thing, that this is overtly political. And then that's actually illegal in Europe, and you get sued. Exactly. So that's why it's not... Um yet clear what are other legal venues they have for stopping this project. Um, uh, and it's also interesting that uh, German officials have left it purposefully rather vague in terms of what we might do, right? It's mm. not very specific. In, in the US, of course, you know, we have the existing bills and also the administration has uh, the capacity to move in uh, with secondary sanctions on, the, on European companies. Is this this um, SDN list? Isn't that the main tool here, the, the, the sanctioned um, nationals list or, or companies list? You get put on that list and then that gives the US special powers to sanction you. And they can use that list and just add anyone they want. And in specifically, they can add a European company and say, well, actually, it's legal what you're doing, but under this special power, we can fine you. Absolutely. And um, there's even... Well, that is one venue, and it's almost more direct uh, sort of way of sanctioning. There's also an indirect way where companies that uh, do something that U.S. does not like, a foreign company, it might also lose access to the U.S. financial markets and the dollar. Mm. And that is almost even more meaningful, uh, as we saw in the case of Iran in 2018, where nobody will then dare touch the, the project or, or the payments. Mm. Because um, this morning uh, there was a report that the U.S. were now threatening to hit. Um, the FT was reporting <clears throat> that <clears throat> it was going to sanction um, new oil and gas projects. And uh, the analysts were saying, well, this is mildly negative for sentiment because they were saying there are really two really big projects, Gazprom's uh, Baltic LNG and Novatek's Ar Arctic LNG 2. Um, they've actually been signed off. The, the final investment decision has been made. And so they don't qualify as new, <clears throat> although it could be uh, complicating in, in, the, in the future. And the technology, too, that Novatech has got its own LNG technology, so you can't stop that going. And in that sense, it seems somewhat symbolic. But on the other hand, this is like a long-term risk. It just adds to the risks. But it's the same sort of problem, isn't it, that the U.S. are going to target a project and have to put it on the SDN list as a way of stopping anything happening there. That is true, but you're also taking us very to very interesting territory of European economic sovereignty. Mm. And you probably saw that the European Commission just proposed a new tool for defending Europe against economic coercion. And this rich origins of that whole tool, and it's going through presented to Parliament and their legislative changes that they're proposing and, and specific recommendations, where the European Commission would evaluate what consider what consists to be a, a source of uh, an incident of European uh, coercion against uh, Europe, and then what the next steps which should be done in response. And it's interesting that this concept of European economic sovereignty developed uh, partially in response to China, partially in response to Russia, but also importantly partially in response to the US. Um, so uh, so it's, uh, it's sort of 
U.S. doing something unilaterally, even though politically maybe there is an agreement on this, would not, I think, sit well with European authorities, especially in the context where we're talking about um, developing tools, particularly against U.S. sanctions. Indeed. I mean, there's a nasty clash here in so much as the Germans uh, have pushed hard for Nord Stream 2 because they want the gas, because ironically, although it's being sold as a threat to European energy security, it actually improves it because it just gives you another route, more gas gives you access to the to the Arctic markets. And it's even more complicated because companies like OMV, the Hungarian uh, energy company, is actually an investor into Nord Stream 2. And so their interests are very much aligned with Russia. And I think we've we've been at BNE been saying that um, recently the um uh the alliance between the US and uh, and Europe is starting to show cracks. Um, that there's some serious arguments about what should be done, which actually should bring us on very smoothly to SWIFT, because that's where it's most glaring, is that the Americans have been talking about it. I was just reading a news report just out that the Biden administration has been uh, briefing the top banks in America about the implications, of, and they've all been asking about SWIFT in particular, because... Uh, that threatens to spill over into financial markets and cause instability. The Germans specifically said they're afraid of that. And of course, if you cut Russia off from SWIFT, it makes it very difficult, does it not, for Europe to pay for its oil and gas. So this is a very important for issue, um, because would you like to sanction the global, the International Monetary Fund? I mean, I'm being a bit controversial here, but uh, it is SWIFT is akin to that. Right. Um, it started off as a payments um, messaging system. So what is SWIFT? SWIFT doesn't settle things. SWIFT provides you an opportunity to message between banks for international transactions. In some countries, it has also moved into domestic transactions. But for example, in the US, US settles everything domestically via the domestic uh, Federal Reserve system. Um, so SWIFT is mostly for the international trade. In the old days, in the 60s, we had telex and we had phones. Uh, but nowadays, we pay for each other via these transactions. It's not the, always the most efficient, but it, it has uh, its obvious uh, benefits. But it is a consortium. It's like a cooperative of global international financial institutions. It also has a supervisory board, by the way, which Bank of Russia is on it. <laughs> uh, but it's, it has a G10 and, and I think another plus 15 countries that are also on that board uh, because it's so important for global financial stability. Mm. So it is almost like sanctioning the IMF or the World, or the world Bank. But what um, if it was um, a financial crisis? I mean, if you block the Russians from it, uh, how, how does that destabilize the financial system? From one day to the next, you will not be able to pay for exports and imports a gross amount of over 600 billion. Mm. That's it. Very simple. Right. So what's going to happen to the global financial markets? Uh, we, we had a hiccup with Rosal. That will probably will be barely noticeable hiccup in, in context. Mm. But even that, I mean, Rosal, <clears throat> when Deripaska was sanctioned in 2018, um, the prices for aluminium on the market the next day shot up 30%. Um, and it highlights to what extent Russia's economy is already deeply integrated into the global economy. It's not like, you know, it's not like a rand sitting there by itself doesn't really have much to do with anyone. Um, it's, it's a major, intricate part of the global economy, particularly in the supply chains for energy and metals. These are basic things. And if you suddenly take it out, you're saying that just creating that huge hole in the market from where Russia was is in itself inherently uh, destabilizing. 
It will be cratering. You know, majority of European companies rely for more than 50% uh, on Russian uh, gas imports for their gas supply. And you have a good sort of 10 or so countries that it's over 80%, say seven countries over 80%. The average is uh, is 40 for EU 27. Um, there are opportunities for LNG to try to compensate for that. There are terminals, as we know, in the UK, uh, Spain, France. Uh, but And the capacity utilization is there, not at the max. But it's only a small percentage of total supply that Europe needs. Uh, so paying for that will become impossible overnight if you were talking about disconnecting the whole country. So in the bill, the American bill, um, they also included sanctions and the ability to sanction um, messaging services, other ones. Is it that, because the Russians have, they set up um, this their own payment system, the, the Mir one is uh, for credit cards for regular people, I forget the name of the, the interbank one, but they have an interbank system. SPFS, uh, Financial one. Communication System, yes. And um, from what I've read, it works. Um, it's not as efficient and it doesn't have the capacity that SWIFT does, but it does work. And presumably because the infrastructure is all there, they'll just roll it out. And the Chinese have been anticipating this. And so Russia, China have their own payment system that works because they're going increasingly to national currencies. So from the Russian point of view, this would be a huge pain in the neck, but it wouldn't be a disaster. They would be able to cope and they would just ramp up their own system and then give it a year or two that that would be working fine. So in that sense, this is just to annoy the Russians, isn't it? I mean, it's not actually going to pressure them or force them to do anything, put it that way. So it's not clear to me how sanctioning their domestic systems will be possible and uh, sort of, um, you know, it's possible, of course, but it would be also very dangerous uh, precedent. So you're right. So the domestic wholesale uh, messaging system, which is Russia's alternative to SWIFT, and again, as we were talking, US doesn't use SWIFT for domestic purposes, right? So it has an independent system. Japan and, and, and Europe also is, is um, sort of all uh, looking, Japan already has it, China is doing it. Um, so it's not uncommon for domestic payment systems to actually have your own system. So Russian uh, uh, payment system is processing about um, 20% or a bit over 20% of, uh, of uh, total traffic uh, in terms of million of messages domestically. Mm-hmm. Um, and they can, because the system is already there and it's sort of complies with international standards, it can go up quickly, probably with some hiccups, but it can process all the domestic systems. So that is not the concern. The issue is, if you look at the Chinese system, and there's been talk since 2018, I think, about connecting the Russian-China national advanced payment system and the Russian system, uh, but it's not clear they really have connected. There are some international banks in the Chinese system, including Russian ones, but there is almost nobody. I think there's nobody in the Russian system. Only the Bank of China is there. So clearly that link is not working too well. Of course, it will have to come up quickly if there will be pressure on SWIFT. There are other global payment systems, and some of them are based on the blockchain technology. Right. Uh, but of course, they will not be able to take the volume. And with some, U.S. regulator has issues for other reasons. Let, let me ask a very simple question. Um, will Germany be able to pay Russia for its gas imports if well, SWIFT is banned? <coughs> uh, short answer, uh, sort of like short answer is no. So doesn't that cause a huge energy crisis? I mean, you can't cut Germany off from Russian gas. I I just put a piece up um, this morning having a look at exactly this issue and that um, you can't replace Russia's imports to Europe, 200 BCM, with LNG. I mean, that would take at least 1,400 ships arriving 
you know, over the course of the year, and there just aren't that many ships. And moreover, you can't take the LNG away from Asia to supply Europe because then you cause an energy crisis in Asia. So this whole thing is just impossible, isn't it? I mean, if you ban SWIFT and Germany can't buy gas, then you create the, the gas crisis we've been having this year will be like a baby party in comparison, no? You're absolutely correct. And also there is a question of distribution that uh, of that gas within the country, right? There are terminals and there are big terminals in the UK, which is, by the way, out of uh, is Brexited, right? Then there is Spain, there is Italy and a few others, but you also need France. Uh, there is also, you need a way to distribute it uh, to the end consumer as well, which is also interesting in that kind of level of capacity. It's in that <coughs> level, that volumes. Uh, but I think it's important also to step back and think if we're disconnecting uh, uh, Russian financial system or banks from the global payment systems, um, one does not have to go for the whole country. What, uh, of course, the administration knows, they can start looking through individual banks and decide which ones they would like to either disconnect from the global payment systems or access to the U.S. dollar. This doesn't have to be to go the same way. And of so course, with Interestingly, in the bill, it does specifically name 14, 13 banks. And uh, I looked down the list, and there's a lot of really obvious ones, Sparebank, BTB, Gazprom Bank, um, DEB, uh, top the list, then the Russian Direct Investment Fund, RTIF is in there. But then the rest of the list gets a bit strange, because there's Alpha Bank, and I know poor Mikhail Friedman always gets targeted, because he's a big oligarch, but... Having known Alpha Bank well and followed it, I don't see it as a sort of Kremlin vehicle. It's, it's just a very successful commercial bank. Uh, Adkriti Bank is on there, which is currently owned by the central bank. But they're just about to IPO, and, and Unicredit wants to buy them, you know, because it's the fastest growing bank in the country. It's been fixed, it's clean, it's got a nice business. Uh, Promspheres, well, that's now a defense bank. Um, Sovcom Bank, another strange one. It's a sort of regional bank, super successful, nothing to do with the Kremlin as far as I can see, uh, and yet it's on the list. So I'm not sure how they chose the banks in the second half of the list. Um, but this, again, is more punishment than forcing Russia to do anything, isn't it? I mean, they, they picked out the biggest banks. And if you, if you penalize Sparebank, you know, half the country banks for Sparebank. So that's going to be a huge pain in the neck. Um, but you're suggesting that you know that's the way to do it. Then you can penalize Sparebank without disrupting the system, the international system, too much. No? It will still have a massive impact on the international system. But if they were to decide to go up, sort of after some of the smaller banks, uh, that will have much less of an impact, right? So that's mm -hmm. uh, and then it's more specific, targeted uh, measures saying that yes, we can do it. But of course, it's not going to be a massive preemptive measure. Um, and then just, just very quickly, just to give you a step back a little bit perspective on Washington, until recently, uh, most of the analytical capacity and funded capacity was focused on China. Mm -hmm. Russia was a secondary or, or a tense issue. So you also do not have too many people who are experts on the topic and, and have studied equities and the, sort of the interlinkages of the Russian financial system internally and what does it mean and how it's connected. And just by the sheer number of bills that have been coming up, some of them was complete laundry lists and competing with each other. Yeah. Uh, it tells you the level of sort of uh, of the debate uh, that we have uh, at the moment on the on the detail. The um, that's actually one of the scary aspects of this. The, the White House put out a statement um, this week, last week, uh, this week, um, saying that two thirds of Russia's uh, revenue is is from oil and gas, and then the analysts were were saying, well, that was true in. 2014, you know, things have changed since then. And that is, 
yeah, that is an issue. If this is the White House and they, they're putting out official statements where it's appallingly researched, it suggests the level of understanding uh, in the White House. And I'm not saying, I mean, I know people in Washington, I've talked to people in the embassy who are actually really on their game, they know, but it seems to be coming from the White House level where people are ill-informed and lashing out with these, these um, inaccurate statements. And it's scary because if that's the level of understanding, then putting a complicated dangerous sanctions bill like this which cause could cause major financial disruptions is is a is a is a, a dangerous thing to do because it could, this could go horribly wrong as we saw with Derry Pascal's sanctions go on i do have to give a lot of credit to the uh, to the team about uh, the sanctions for quality of the experts on sanctions on the on the in the current administration you saw uh, of course, sanctions on the globally financial integrated economy is extremely new, right? We started doing it really with Russian example in 2014. Mm. But since then, of course, we there are a few people who developed expertise and were in think tanks uh, in, in Washington, D.C. Many of them also came back to, to the administration. So in terms of quality of analysis on the sanctions themselves, yeah. you have some of the top experts currently in the administration. Right. But also the way that sanctions are drafted, as you, as you pointed out, there is also Congress and there is also administration. There is more than um, than one cook in the kitchen and there is also a relationship between the two of them plus the transatlantic negotiations as well right uh, related to this banks and swift question although it's not in the bill um biden said explicitly that and he, he threatens this um that they would cut russia or russians i don't think it was quite clear off from the access to dollars but again, this is related by hitting a bank and you put it on the SDN list and then it can't use dollars. It, it, no one will trade with it. Is that right? Absolutely. Yes. You can go under individual financial institutions. And uh, we have seen that sort of a version of that a little bit with the primary market on external debt, right? Mm-hmm. That no financial institution can facilitate issue of the primary Russian debt in the foreign in in in, in eurobonds, uh, which that means you can effectively not really do it in dollar, mm-hmm. right? Because the moment you issue in dollars, U.S. dollars, it somehow has to make its way to the bank correspondent banks, to the U.S.-based financial institution that eventually has a you know a U.S. presence and access to the Fed. So. So that is effectively cutting off uh, that part uh, of foreign debt from the dollar. I mean, there are some legal speculation whether you could issue in uh, euros, say, and, and link it, uh, whether that will qualify or not. But that's that's too much detail. So that brings us neatly onto the next topic, the OFZs, uh, the, the Russian federal um, ruble-denominated bonds. But they've attracted whatever it is, $40 billion worth since uh, Russia was hooked up to Clearstream. And now you can trade those bonds from the comfort of your dealing chair in London directly. And there's been a flood of people into them and everyone has been overweight in IFZs because the Russia risk means that the premium makes them actually very lucrative. Uh, As an investor, they're very appealing. And this time around, the IFZs have come up many times and there was a round of sanctions uh, when Biden first came in where they were suggested and then taken off again, but they're back on the agenda. And the issue here is they keep banning, well, they've banned already, I think, the primary issues when the Ministry of Finance issues them. You can't go to the auction. But that's symbolic because you can buy them two seconds later on the secondary market for pretty much the same price. Um, now they're talking about secondary, that you can't buy them or trade them at all, which is much more serious. But to what extent do well there's two questions here uh, but i think the main one is is what extent how important is that if you 
take out this $40 billion of foreign investors, because the foreign investors own about 20 of them. To what extent is that a problem? Um, the, the, when there was a, a sell-off um, in the last crash, uh, the Russian banks stepped in and they bought 80, 90% of the issues. And I think when we talked in Ukraine, the banks don't have enough money to do that, but I'm not sure in Russia if the banks do have enough money to replace those foreign investors or not. So uh, just a few numbers in perspective. You're right, it is uh, 20%, uh, and it's about 40 billion relative to reserves of over 600, right? So it's, a, it's not a big number. Russia will have a headline current account and fiscal deficit big surpluses, uh, especially on the current account, already had last year, and it's going to have this year. So strictly speaking, it only needs to roll the debt. It, it, for the Ministry of Finance in the extreme scenario can just sit and not issue. Right. And whatever rolling that happens, the domestic banks have enough liquidity and they're still in liquidity surplus to step in and uh, continue buying. So it's no I mean, longer... put a number on the current account. Uh, it's, it's something on the order of $120 yes. billion, isn't it? So yes, yes. That, that covers that $40 billion easily if, if just from the trade surplus. Just from the trade surplus, exactly, given where the commodity prices are. Um, then uh, we... So, so it's used to be a systemic issue. So just stepping back to 2014, why did we, why there was a policy to attract foreign investors into the domestic market? Because as we were building Fortress Russia strategy, the authorities realized they cannot contract fiscal fast enough. It just will be too painful. They did fiscal adjustment, which is more than average or median of fiscal adjustments under the IMF programs. So they did it themselves, just so they would be more protected against external threats, geopolitical included. So in the short term, while the fiscal adjustment was happening, the inflation and targeting happened, high real rates, open capital accounts, you suck in foreigners to help you out. But at this stage, when you're already in fiscal surplus, you no longer need them. So that's why, of course, it's extremely significant to have foreign participation for the uh, development of the curve, as you know, external and domestic. Everything gets priced of the office curve. If you're going into a financial autarky where you have no foreign investors into your local curve, of course, pricing gets much more complicated and difficult. And the shallowness of the market becomes even more pronounced, right? It will also impact the ruble market. Already you've seen the BIS survey from the previous sanctions, ruble liquidity has dropped, and it will probably drop even further, affecting regular companies, foreign companies included. But uh, in terms of the macro stability impact, it's, it's a drop in the ocean. So looking at the offsets, having foreigners in there makes for a more efficient market. And of course, you know, it's somebody else's money. That's good for your, your current account. Um, but do you think they actually planned this? In the, or, or I think they must be conscious. It's like if we have all these foreign investors, then you can't sanction these bonds because there's this boomerang effect with a lot of these sanctions is that they boomerang back on the West and actually cause, you know, our companies on this side, banks, significant damage when they sanctioned Deripaska and they went after the, the secondary trader. I talked to a, a guy at um, Deutsche who had like, I don't know, $40 million worth of these bonds. And um, he said that compliance was ringing him every day saying, sell these bonds. They're going to be illegal to hold in two weeks. And he was shouting back at them. I can't sell them because they're going to be illegal to hold in two weeks. So they're worth nothing. I can't get rid of them. And so I'm going to be stuck holding them. We're going to be stuck holding them. But I also, and again, it's not in the bill, but some people are speculating that if they do bring in very harsh sanctions against EOF sets, that there'll be a transition period. There'll be a window allowing people to sell. But then if you know that they, you have to sell, the prices will plummet. Although the finance ministry has also said that it would step in and just buy them from the foreigners. I mean, 
do we have any, any idea? So uh, let's remember there is Venezuelan case, right? Where um, also similar to what you were talking about, uh, the Pascoe sanctioning of the of the market, the, the bond market. And of course, the U.S. Treasury did it at the time when the Venezuelan market was also trading already at the low levels and, and sort of the liquidity was not very high. But basically, even during the transition period, um, it was um, impossible to find in the intermediary who will facilitate your uh, offloading from a U.S.-based investor to a non-U.S.-based investor because the compliance risk of saying that I guarantee you that it's not going to end up with the U.S.-based investor is enormous. So therefore, effectively, a lot of people just couldn't sell it, similar to the Rusal situation. Mm. So you had a heavily discounted bond, and there will be nobody on the in, sort of the intermediating broker who will say, fine, I'm going to do it for you during this period. So uh, there was, in a way of uh, writing off, of U.S. institutions writing off this debt um, and sort of giving a small present to, to the administration. Yeah. Uh, so there might be something similar to that. Yeah, because that's one of the ironies, is that um, if it gets sanctioned and people can't sell it, then the Ministry of Finance can just say, yeah, tough luck, guys, and we don't have to pay it. So uh, bye, you know, we just get $40 billion free as a result of this. So yeah, so Ministry of Finance stepping in buying it, they might, they will, they will have, they will think twice whether they need to do it, maybe for the volatility market, yes, but uh, uh, they, they're not exactly 100% incentivized in this situation. Right. I think those are the most, well, there's one more tricky issue um, to talk about, but before we do that, then, one of the interesting things about this list is that there's no oligarch list. I think because the White House got egg on its face so many times trying to choose oligarchs. Um, however, the, there is a list of officials, um, starting with Putin. Mistushin's um, in there, the Lavrov is there, Shoigu's there. I mean, everybody from the top uh, are going to be sanctioned. But um, I don't know. I think that's just for show. I don't think Putin has a house in France. I don't think there's any way of going at him um, in the same way they sanctioned Lukashenko and he just laughed it off. But uh, I guess you need to have some of that. But do you, do you think in general this, because the, the SDN list um, does give the Treasury Department a tool to target business people. I mean, to what extent do you think that's effective? Because I was just talking to Uzbekistan this morning to some guys who, um, this big um, Hoover manufacturing company, and they want to export to Russia this year. It's their big target. Uh, and they're just about to put up a factory in Kazakhstan. And I said, what about Russia? It's much larger. And you've got serious transport problems from Central Asia to, to Russia. And they were like, yeah, it is attractive, but we're not going to do it now because the climate is just is too unpredictable. And I think that's the real cost, isn't it? I mean, the damage it does to the investment climate, this targeting big business. And medium, I mean, I think any sanctions already are doing huge damage to the medium-term outlook. And we see that in, the, in, in terms of uh, the, the vibrancy of the markets is not the same. Uh, but in terms of individual sanctions, they can be very effective if they're well-selected. I think and sort of they're, lock, they're increasing the cost of doing what you're doing. It doesn't mean, so they, if you think about the purpose of sanctions, it can be preemptive, it can be to change your behavior, or it can be just imposing a cost, for example. So these are different uh, objectives. In, uh, and then uh, by signaling strongly to government officials, if you continue on this path, your personal cost will keep on increasing. Um, that could be meaningful in, in some cases. I do not want to speculate whether it will change any of this, any of this behavior. That's, but. But just ben, ben, just very quickly, sorry. Do you have many examples of, uh, I'm just not knowledgeable enough, but do you have many examples of uh, when assets were frozen abroad uh, based on the past sanctions? 
No, nearly none. But Precisely. Um, but if you look at the FDI figures, I think that's where it shows. And we've always said that every big foreign investor who's in Russia already love it. They, you know, I've had one company after another, French, German, Italian, it's a gold mine. We love it. This is the best market we've ever been to. And moreover, that they're reinvesting all their profits into expansion as fast as they can go. And moreover, they're making so much profits, they don't even have to draw on the parent company. So they're, they're, they're at no cost and even sending dividends home, although most of them have decided to reinvest. However, if you're outside Russia, you're not already in, you would never go. You just wouldn't go near it because it, it looks so horrible. And consequently, the FDI numbers are basically this all reinvested profits. And ironically, the real FDI that's in there or has come in there over the last years, uh, me and Ivan did a piece on it, it actually comes from the States. The States is actually the biggest investor, but it's all indirect through other countries. I was going to actually bring that piece because, as you know very well, that <laughs> net and gross FDI numbers in the balance of payments are very hard to disentangle properly. And they never show anything that's plus minus negative uh, during most years. But yes, you're right. The gross numbers uh, are definitely impacted. The big chunk is coming from the US as well. But right now, in addition to the domestic rule of law concerns, you have a massive compliance risk to enter, and it will prevent a lot of people to enter. And I think that also potentially brings us to the sanctions or, or the rather expert controls that US is thinking about. That's that the, will... the topic I wanted to come up next. And there, there's in this section, um, it's actually quite vague. Um, the bill says just list Russian extractive industries, oil and gas, coal, uh, mineral extraction, and any other sector or industry the president wants to sanction. So that looks to me like it's just a, a blank check that they can go after any company that they want to. I mean, they haven't named Gazprom, Rosneft, which are the obvious ones. But if they want to, they can they can sanction those and cause, you know, it's, it's picking out, you know, threat, it's, it's a way of threatening because you can say that we'll, we'll just take out one big company after another and make their life hell. What you can also go is after specific products that the U.S. exports. So U.S. has a lot of leeway in terms of export controls for the geopolitical or not, not just national security objectives. Mm. Um, so they can name, like, say, computer chips or something. They can make specific products export limited to Russia. So mm. it doesn't even have to go after individual company, uh, which is different from Europe. In Europe, you have sort of each has their own. And at the European level, you can only do expert controls on the specific military-related uh, equipment. Mm. <clears throat> we did a piece, actually, um, last summer saying, look, Russia's soft underbelly. If you want to sanction it, what you should sanction is not oil and gas or, or uh, oligarchs. You should sanction high-precision tools. And that's because Russia, it's, it's missed two, maybe three revolutions in machine tools, you know, since it joined the Soviet Union. And there's been another one since the Soviet Union collapsed or two revolutions. And so these tools are now extremely sophisticated. And Russia has been trying to diversify. And so it's increased the import of tools from China. But these are all simple tools. The really good ones, the really sexy ones uh, are basically the states in Germany. And uh, you cut it off from that, then you, 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 you stop industrial progress, you stop research and development, you know, you actually uh, hobble the economy in a really significant way so Russia will fall further and further behind. And I don't know, I didn't get the impression, I think it's as you say, I think they're going to go after specific products, mainly, you know, computer chips, and just cut you off from that because it'd be a pain in the neck rather than something a bit more strategically damaging. 
But, you know, Russia is already fighting an uphill battle being, being a commodity exporter. And diversification, as we know, from commodities and emerging markets is extremely challenging, and they're doing the best they can. They have issues with the rule of law. Uh, they have issues now with an increasing sort of economic and financial autarky, uh, including the sort of limitations. And of course, we have the sort of global digital uh, transformation, especially in the industry, which uh, Russia will risk missing out on. So all that weighs on the your medium term, not even long term, but medium term outlook uh, and productivity. Um, so it's not going to get better, I think. Even if we stay here after the conflict and there is no further escalation, it's still not going to get better. Because yeah. once the sanctions are imposed, it's almost impossible to take them off. And I always give an example of, uh, of the 1974, uh, uh, I forgot the name now. Um, Jackson the, and Vanik. Yes, exactly. Jackson Vanik uh, uh, on the on the sort of people not being able to immigrate from the Soviet Union. It was never taken off. It was replaced by something else. But it was waved and waved and waved. But it's actually long after the Soviet Union broke up. So uh, it just tells you how hard it is to take off sanctions. The the only ones that have been taken off, the Derry Pascal ones were taken off. That, that's the only ones. Uh, and I think everyone admitted that was such a huge mistake. Uh, that, that and I think it had uh, something to do also with the very sort of common approach from Europe responding to it, mm. uh, to the US. I don't think it's the benefit of uh, anybody else, but I think it's especially European countries who said, wait a second, we cannot replace suppliers. This doesn't work and you didn't give us enough warning. So I think the that's... Indeed. I mean, the, the whole question of whether the sanctions are going to be imposed in this form and um, what Europe's going to do, which is obviously going to be very unhappy, uh, that's all a political one. I don't think we should talk about that here. Um, we've gone through the list of the bill, but I think at this point I'd like to ask you, so all these sanctions, <clears throat> how effective are they? I mean, how much of a tool are they in order to um, get to allow the US government to force Russia to change its ways? Because it seems to me, you know, all these sanctions, that all they do is make Russia dig its heels in and do things like collect $630 billion worth of reserves. But we have said, in general, they present a real cost, but not from the sanctions themselves, but in the, the damage it does to the investment climate. And also the fact that the government is hoarding all this money when it should be leveraging up, it should be spending the money, the economy would boom if it did that. And obviously, they've been running an austerity budget since about 2014, you know, in effect. Well, the question is, coming back to the basic, what is your objective? Is your objective to preempt certain behaviors, change somebody's behaviors? Is your objective to make it caustic? And mm. there are, uh, there's relatively little sort of uh, research and evidence on, uh, there is, but not too much, in terms of the effectiveness of changing somebody's behavior. Because just because it's just too hard to link it from the economic financial sanction to the eventual geopolitical outcome, foreign policy outcome. So um, that is challenging. In terms of how effective they are in uh, inflicting pain, they have been very effective. And we've seen what happened in 2014, and we just discussed what can happen if you disconnect from global payment systems or from the dollar. Uh, it could be very painful. Uh, the issue is whether it changes behavior. I think uh, nobody has, uh, has a clear idea on that. I don't think so, knowing the Kremlin as well as I do. I don't know if I could say that, but um, surely at the bottom line is that the end of the day, Russia's economic potential growth at the moment is 2%. And it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be 2%. It should be a lot more. And so that's the effect of the sanctions. And Putin is prepared to accept 2% because he refuses to be told what to do. He refuses to toe the line and, you know, he causes all these problems. 
There is also a question in any country with this sort of a group of authorities that have been there at the top for a very long time. Would you rather have a smaller pie and keep your share or have a bigger pie and lose your share? Mm. Putin's got so, a small pie. Um, very specifically as well, another loose end I wanted to tie up. To what extent will all of this, I mean, particularly the threat of cutting people off from the dollar, which if you think about it, is really a significant thing, giving us the global currency of commerce. And um, already Russia and China have started moving to national currencies and already people have been talking about de-dollarizing. But surely not only will Russia and China accelerate that process, because I think behind these sanctions on Russia is this is all clearly a gun pointed at China too. At least I'm sure that's how they'll see it, not being a Chinese expert. Um, to what extent will this will this accelerate? Yeah. Because all the other emerging markets are like, well, I don't, you know, let's diversify our currency. I don't want to be bullied by the states in the same way further down the road and drive the de-dollarization process even faster, which has started, but it's going slowly. Well, the government officials in the US over the years um, have made comments about it, that they are concerned that increasing sort of uh, weaponization of uh, interconnectedness uh, of the and sort of centrality of the US dollar um, and the centrality of the US markets will potentially drive people away. And as we know from the example, I think Barry Eichengreen has written about it, from the example of the pound, it doesn't happen very uh, sort of it takes a long time to happen but then it happens very quickly because in the old days pound actually used to be the the the, uh, the leading currency at some point so um, that's um, the issue is what russian authorities already have done because they are concerned that the, the investments in the u.s treasury used to be 140 60 80 billion and it's now less than 10. Mm. So that is a very big change. Uh, of course, maybe some of it, some people speculate, has moved on to sort of other entities. But I, again, the drop is still very significant. Gold is now the largest share of uh, reserves. It used to be, um, sorry, it's uh, it's a larger share of reserves than the dollar. Um, it used to be sort of less than 10%. Now it's 20 and dollar is about 16. It came down from, uh, from 40% of Russian reserves. And the one so, is in the basket now as well, which didn't used to be. Exactly, and it has um, it's more than I think it's more than thirteen percent or so, and it's higher than in some other countries. Also, the regional sort of geographical distribution where Russia holds the money has also changed. We moved away a bit from, of course, partially because of gold is is on domestic side. Mm-hmm. Um, similarly, even in trade, where you would think that uh, you know our euro and yuan should be higher, but you have seen the change. So the share of dollar in trade in before sanctions used to be eighty percent. And now it's about, uh, I think, 50 15. No, 15. not 15. No, no, no. It's, it's, it's I think, 55, 54, something like that. And it's, euro has increased significantly. I was going to say, I mean, to what extent can you replace the dollar with the euro? I mean, that's now a widely traded currency, you know, for all these countries in this patch. Um, is, is it viable just to drop the dollar and go to the euro? It is absolutely viable. And uh, you have seen an important shift during the previous U.S. administration. You have seen a shift in Europe where uh, ECB that never used, we used to be agnostic about Euro for 20 years, would say we'll do the right things on the monetary front, but we don't care about promoting Euro, have changed the tune completely with Benoit Correa and Draghi and now, of course, Lagarde making comments and writing regular update reports on the role of global, the role of Europe. So that has changed. And then also the commission in 2018 changed the tune. And now we move from commissioners... Uh, considering promotion of euro, including for Europe, for energy markets. We want uh, Russian sort of European economic sovereignty to now developing tools against European, uh, against uh, economic coercion. This is a huge shift. And it didn't come just because of China and Russia. 
Mm. No, I think um, history, they'll look back and they'll regret this, pushing Russia into China's arms, uh, weaponizing the dollar, which encourages people to get out of it because it gives them significant amount of geopolitical power, um, having the dollar as a global currency. Look, we um, got 15 minutes left um, with the intention to do this for an hour. Um, I want to briefly touch on the disruptive stuff uh, that hasn't been specifically sanctioned, but oil, gas, agriculture, and the ruble. Um, maybe we can start with the ruble. Um, it's become very sensitive to geopolitics. It's pretty much disengaged from the oil price. Oil prices this week were up to 90, and yet the ruble is down to 80 from 70, which is an enormous change. Uh, and Russian assets is incredibly cheap. It has like enormous reserves, more than two years. So the ruble's value should not be down at 80. And what was striking to me, though, was that last time I remember the ruble being at 80 was in 2014 with the oil shock. And Nabulina, I remember the traders were freaking out. I mean, they were screaming like rate hike, rate hike, rate hike. And Nabulina came to the rescue in the end, 17% rate hike. And this time it got to 80, or it was going to get to 80 that day. And she just said, oh, we're just going to stop buying dollars. And everything was fine. No rate hike, no panic, but we're at 80 again. I mean, that's what's different between those two stories when, when she did the last time in that? Flexible exchange rate and inflation targeting and super credible central bank. This is night and day. You know, what the what Nabilan and her team has done at the central bank is, is incredible and how fast they managed to achieve their credibility. And as you remember, the same traders in 2013, 14 were thinking they're insane. They have no market experience. They, why are the, some of them were saying, why are they hiking? You need to do some special measures. You know, you don't understand trading. You're just some economist ladies coming from where. So I think uh, chapeau to Nabulina and, and the brush. I'm wearing brushes now uh, to, <laughs> to <laughs> signal my moods. But um, I think it's, it's a credibility of the central bank when we don't have to watch the ruble anymore. It has an impact, but you have low dollarization of uh, individual credit is not dollarized at all. Uh, some, there is some dollarization of corporates, but many of them have uh, also income and, and foreign exchange. External debt, thanks to sanctions, is yeah. much smaller and much and, uh, sort of longer term. Um, so so the, there is pass through, of course, from exchange rate to, to inflation. And inflation right now elevated. So I, I think she will turn potentially more hawkish if we stay here, because yeah. uh, pass through is possibly maybe 0.05%, uh, you know, so it's not high, but it's, it will have a marginal contribution for sure, especially when real incomes are, are not growing. So uh, for the market but, people, you think there's going to be one more hike? I mean, we thought this last 100 points in December was probably the last one, but it could be another. I would, I would have to watch it. And, and in our forecast, we don't have inflation coming into the 4% target this year. Right. So uh, especially with the ruble at this level. But again, it's normal. If they're targeting inflation and uh, you want to preserve financial stability, and I think savings for Central Bank of Russia is very important. Um, I think they will be watching this move closely because of inflation rather than exchange. She, um, but she must be on board with this fiscal fortress that Putin's done. I mean, in so much as she's the central bank and she's built up, you know, she was saying last year, my comfort level is $500 billion uh, for the reserves. And, um, you know, she was actively pursuing that. But as a central banker, you look at that reserves, it's, it's just insanely in excess of what you need to run the, the financial system. So, I mean, she's as much as an architect um, as Putin at this, or at least she's the, uh, the mechanic that makes it happen, huh? 
Well, there is an incredible coordination uh, between the president's economic team, uh, Ministry of Finance and the central bank. And it has happened throughout since the, since the sanctions in 2013-14. Maybe there was some sort of like sort of period of working together, but the Ministry of Finance and the Central Bank work very closely and cooperate very closely, mm -hmm. and as well as with the President's administration. So it's definitely very much a coordinated strategy. There is uh, relatively little discord. I'm not going to comment on the Ministry of Economy at times, right? But yeah. that is because of the different centers. Ministry of Economy would like to see stronger growth. So uh, that's natural that there are some tensions occur in any country. Um, in terms of reserves, yeah, that they surpass anything. The, there is some dollarization of deposits, so which uh, I have to say I was a bit surprised to find that the dollarization still is uh, in the 20s, which was this kind of credibility of central bank. Dollarization, speaking more broadly, it can be dollar, euro, any other mm -hmm. non-ruble currency. So with that, you know, I think they have... Um, about 200 billion of that um, in dollars, uh, or sort of in uh, converted to dollars. So you need a little bit of reserves in case, for example, you have a chop off from the US dollar and you need to still meet those uh, obligations, help the banks meet those obligations. And also in terms of external debt, I think the total external debt is also about, um, in dollars, is about 200 billion. It's right. 478 total and, and 200 billion in dollars. So you need some reserves for that, for the extreme scenario where you might not be able to access the, the dollars at all, right? Okay, um, moving on from the ruble, the, 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 one of the other vulnerabilities is um, the, the exports. I mean, they could go after gas, oil, and agriculture. But I was reading a note this morning, and the oil analyst was saying, like, it, trying to sanction Russian oil exports is kamikaze option for Europe. And we already mentioned with the gas cutting, because the economists ran a piece saying, like, you know, can Europe get by... If, Gas off. But then you talk to the oil and gas people, like, that's never going to happen uh, just because it would be such a disaster. It'd be like dropping yeah. a nuclear bomb, mutually assured destruction for both Russia and uh, Europe at the same time. So, can we, can we just completely discount those scenarios? I don't think we can completely discount those scenarios because US imports, uh, it is actually imports Russian oil and it imports more from Russia than it does from Saudi. And, and not, let's imports, not forget that. The imports from Russia have gone up recently. Yes, exactly. Yes, from yes. Venezuela. So here's yes. a parody. Yeah. Yeah. So there, but you know, abstracting from that, for for US, it's not. It doesn't have any systemic importance. Of course, with the concerns about inflation, and we've seen Powell here this week. Uh, we have, um, you know, of course, this massive spike in commodity prices will also have an impact on the global economy mm. uh, because the central banks will be under pressure to hike more, even though we still have the new variants of, of COVID and not the full recovery. Um, so that will have global spillovers even to the U.S. But I don't think it can be fully discounted because from the U.S. Uh, administration and Congress point of view, it's, it's, um, it's mentioned less in recent weeks. But mm -hmm. it's not completely discounted. For Europe, it is. Uh, it will be devastating. Um, yeah, no, I, I agree. I just did a piece looking at it, and it doesn't make any sense to do. Look, last question, and and this is actually probably one of the. I've just been thinking about this and reading about it. The agriculture. If Russia invades Ukraine, it's going to go into East Ukraine, which is where all the grain fields are. Ukraine has now four years in a row, each year, broken last year's record with export. Um, and production. And it's going, it's on course to do the same again. But if there's a war there, you're going to take the whole Ukrainian production of grain out of the market. And the problem there is one of the um, unintended benefits of the fight you have with Russia is that it's diversified its export, particularly of grain. 
And if you go into the Middle East and Lebanon and Egypt, um, it's anything between a fifth and a third of those countries' imports of wheat is Ukrainian wheat. And if this suddenly disappears, you're going to get prices going through the roof. But the food inflation that's already been running, I, I read, is um, the price, food inflation is now to a similar level it was when the Arab Spring happened. So if you provide a, a grain uh, shock, bread prices doubling, isn't this a catastrophe situation, a scenario? Couldn't you, I mean, I'm speculating on whether there's going to be another hour of spring, but certainly the conditions will be recreated. I mean, to what extent should we be scared of that, um, that the problem with food security in Europe if you remove Ukraine's grain production? I think um, you're right to be concerned. And it also shows the resilience of the Ukrainian economy, that the, the pivot that we were just talking about from export reliance mostly on Russia and certain products, uh, FDI reliance also mostly on Russia, it has pivoted completely to, towards Europe. And the compliance with European standards for exports has helped them a lot to gain new markets because mm. they have, they're complying and they have, more, sort of, they have more trust from other buyers as well. And that helped them to diversify also more globally with their products. So definitely it will have a huge impact. We've seen very strong uh, uh, harvests recently contributing to the positive terms of trains for Ukraine. Um, it will, yeah, it's hard to speculate what exactly political outcomes have led to, but it pushes back to already high inflation. And emerging markets, don't forget, have already started hiking and tightening their fiscal policies already last year, even though they're still on uneven footing. The DM markets had a bit more time. So if, in, if on top of the current wave of inflation, we have another one, it will have very very impactful for growth of emerging markets. Yeah, no, a shockwave, I think, that would go around the world. Look, um, I was, we should stop there. Um, fascinating talk. Lovely to see you. Um, we've done our hour. I was thinking about doing questions, but I think we should come back to this and then do a more interactive session um, in, next time. But I wanted to go through all these questions to get a, a sound idea of where we're standing um, in terms of this fight coming up. And it looks like the Biden administration is revving up to put sanctions on Russia, irrespective of what happens. And I don't see this argument over NATO expansion ending well, because the Russians have dug their heels in. So I'm sure we'll be doing crisis scenarios next, hopefully not Ukrainian invasions. Elena, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. It was really, really interesting. Thank you so much, Ben. Always a pleasure. And you as expert, as uh, more expert than most on this region. <laughs> That's a big compliment coming from you. And to everyone listening, I'd like to thank you for taking the time and spending staying with us all this time. Um, I hope you found that as interesting as me. <clears throat> uh, last thing I'll do is, is plug um, B&E. Um, we are writing about this stuff every day. And if you go to our website, intellinews.com slash welcome, you can uh, take a trial for the... Um, for the pro service, a premium service that we offer, where we're following this all in depth on a daily basis, and not just Russia, but the whole patch, the whole of emerging Europe down into Central Asia and also um, into North Africa now. So once again, thanks very much for participating. Um, we shall have another one of these, I think, as soon as next week, where we're going to talk about um, business and Ukraine talking to some business leaders about how all this is affecting them and at the same time have a representative from Moscow looking at the same from the perspective of the pragmatists who are trying to continue to run their businesses in the midst of all this madness. Until then, take care. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.